Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. All right, welcome to another episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. You've got myself and B here again. and we... I'm alive this week. Woo! Yeah, you, you brought a lot last week, though. I was not, look, I'm not going to apologize because I really, one of my big passions is, you know, really trying to facilitate women to stop apologizing because it's just so ingrained and it's so I'm reading this incredible book at the moment I really recommend anyone reading it to read it um, if they haven't it's called women's bodies women's wisdom by Christine Northrump it's incredible it's really I feel like you know when you read something and you're like no these are my words I could have written this <laughs> hang on bitch but she wrote it in like the 80s or the 90s or something and it's like taken me all this time to get to it and she's just revised it but I'm like this is what I say, which is why I obviously love it. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, and she's, you know, and I kind of, she talks about how we've really got to stop apologizing. And I'm like, yes, that's one of my things too. So her and I are besties, even though she doesn't know it. But so I'm not going to apologize for next week, but I felt about 3% alive last week. And now I feel probably about 87% alive. So much better. If you just came to the Great Bergen podcast last week, you didn't get the best version of me. And I'm back. Woman, I'm back. So, and you, I'm excited about today's chat because so many people ask us about this. I know. Yeah. So, if you're thoroughly, thoroughly confused about what B's talking about, you'll have to listen to last week's episode where I just threw B into the mix because I'd been at three births in one day. And I said to her, You are going to have to bring the goods this week. And we did exercise in pregnancy. And B just felt like she wasn't her best self. And that's okay. And that was my, it's because it's my, favorite one of my favorite subjects obviously exercise it's all that I do but I have heard from some listeners that said they've been very motivated to exercise after listening to the episode yesterday so that is epic but yeah I'm I'm alive this week I was just existing last week which is very very common and okay absolutely so we just go gentle so yes we're back we're here And I've been researching all about uh, vitamin K for newborns. So that's what we're talking about today, vitamin K. And I haven't been researching it. I haven't been researching it. You have been researching it. I haven't. I've just shown up today. So I'm going to be learning too. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah. I mean, I've got, there are a lot of papers actually. and, And I still get emails and messages every week saying to people, hey, can you send me the research from that? episode that you did the answer is no I can't but you can get it okay all you have to do is go to melaniethemidwife.com and there's a button there that says sign you know you sign up to the podcast mailing list and every week we send out an email and you get access to this big master folder that has every single paper we've ever researched for every single episode so if you want to read more deeply into this episode there is, there's so many papers. And I'm laughing because you were, used the word read and Mel and I were chatting uh, off air that it's really hard for people to read these days. People don't actually read things that they're sent. I'm just laughing that people aren't reading. <laughs> they're asking. We only ever send important emails 
once a week, you get a very important email to say, here's the button to click if you want the resources from this episode. So, And you just have to read that button. That's all just, you have to just that button. Just yeah. read that. As I would like to put out there on this podcast, that as a society of human beings worldwide, I would love it if we read a little bit more, yeah. especially of the emails that Mel and I send. You don't have to read anyone else's stuff. Just Emails are important. It's just, People don't read. Anyway, let's do vitamin K because that's yes. why the people are here. They don't want to hear us rant. <laughs> no, but I do encourage you to read before you choose vitamin K and a place you can find the resources is in the folder. But I'm going to help like spoon feed this. Segway. That was smooth. So good. I've been practicing <laughs> my segways. <laughs> okay, I haven't either. So you've been, you are well researched and rehearsed. I'm just going to be my normal clown self. But tell us. Why are we talking about vitamin K today? Why do we even need to cover it? Yeah, why? Okay, so vitamin K for newborns. The reason we want to talk about it is that really wherever you are in the world, in the developed world that has access to medicine, to Access to westernised healthcare or modern healthcare. I just want to say that in the Solomon Islands, almost 10 years ago now, we have vitamin K. There you go. So, anyway, so it's pretty it's pretty widespread, pretty much worldwide. Yeah. So the reason we wanted to talk about it is that everybody has the option to choose it or not choose it for their baby. And if you're choosing to give something to your baby, then you kind of want to be sure why they're getting it, if it's good, if there's any side effects. So that's what we're here for is to just give you that information. And you know, I'm a private midwife, so I speak to all of my clients about the fact that they have the option to have vitamin K after their birth. And then I'll always give them a big long chat about vitamin K so that I know that they're choosing it because they think it's beneficial rather than just because I suggested it. So yes, so basically it's routinely given to all babies either at birth or throughout the first month of their life. And it does require parental consent. So if you're worried and you think, oh, my gosh, what if they just give it without me saying yes? There's always a form that you would sign and give consent for in hospital where you say that you agree or don't agree for your baby to have vitamin K. So you're literally going to sign something that gives somebody consent to administer that. So, yeah, that's why we're here is to just let you know what you're agreeing to or not agreeing to. And there's really no variation in recommendations. Everything that I've read from every single organization, research papers, everything consistently recommends routine use of vitamin K for babies. So it's very difficult to find really any support for the idea that we should withhold vitamin K from babies. So that's an interesting finding. There's often, there's a, there's two sides of every story, but all of the findings, all of the recommendations really seem to be in line with each other on this matter. And I think before we get into this any further, we need to be really clear that this is not an immunization and it's not part of the immunization schedule. So we are not talking immunizations today. This is a vitamin. Yes, it's uh, it can be given in two ways and we'll talk about that, but it is not an immunization. Yes. Thank you for, for differentiating that because because they give vitamin K at the same time as they often give the hepatitis B vaccine at birth and people just think it's an injection, therefore it must be a vaccine, but it's not at all a vaccine in any way. 
it's not made like one just because it's giving as an as an injection doesn't make it a vaccine. So yeah, it's a vitamin. There's a few fillers, including lecithin and things that help it absorb, of course, but yeah, certainly not. In the- and I, people go, oh, it's immunization and I'm not anti-vax, so I'm just going to give it. So that's why I really wanted to highlight it too, because it it is very different. And like anything, it's really worth having the information for. But yeah, people go, oh yeah, it's an immunization, just give it to my baby. But it is different. Mm. Yeah. All right. So, so then, well, let's answer the question. Why is it recommended that every baby is given vitamin K at birth or in the first four weeks of their life. So there's a very, very rare condition called vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And if you're an older midwife or you've been around for a while, it used to be called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, but they've since, they're telling everybody, call it vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And we are going to talk about the stats of how often this happens, but it's incredibly rare, even more so now because most parents will agree for their baby to have vitamin K. So you virtually never see it. The stats currently in a fully vitamin k population are about one in 100,000 babies will be affected by vitamin K deficiency bleeding, even if they've had the vitamin K. So in a population where, yes, most of us will have had it or both most of our children will have had it, and they've been giving it since the 60s. So probably everybody listening had it at birth and probably all of your children have been offered it. So the, the rates are small. However, there are some papers that have noted an increase now in vitamin K deficiency bleeding because there's a growing number of people who are declining vitamin K administration. So we're going to talk all about that as well. But that's why we give it. There is a disease and it was actually identified about over 120 years ago. And the person who invented vitamin, the vitamin K administration for babies in the 50s actually won a Nobel Prize for it. It was so revolutionary. That's really cool. I never knew that. I know. So there you go. Nobel Prize winning discovery in medicine and could because it could basically reduce the numbers of vitamin K deficiency bleeding to almost zero. So can we just talk about the fact that it's called that for a second though? Because it's a it's a normal physiological deficiency, right? Like we're calling it, we're, I, I have an issue with it being called a deficiency because I believe in physiology and I believe in the way we have been put together. I wonder, and I don't know if you know this, Mel, but the babies that do get sick and or die from it, do they have less vitamin K? Have they looked at, do they have less vitamin K? So this is an interesting question. So it's less about... Yeah how much vitamin K they have, about what risk factors they have that will create some kind of cascade or like interrupt vitamin K use or synthesis in the body. So breastfed babies, there's not a high volume of vitamin K in breast milk. So breastfed babies are thought to be at higher risk. This is almost unheard of in formula-fed babies because formula is fortified with vitamin K. And so they don't have to, like breastfed babies, their microbiome has to develop and catch up and start creating vitamin K, which is how we as adults get a lot of our vitamin K is that our bowel microbiome will actually synthesize vitamin K. There's foods with it in there. So dark leafy greens, broccoli, spinach, people talk about I think spirulina and things like that. Mm, have high yeah. 
So over time, we build up the ability. And technically, yeah, it's actually physiological, a physiological deficiency, if you want to call it that. But I also think of this a little bit like physiological jaundice, right? It's pretty Mm. normal for babies to get jaundice. And there's a very small percentage who, for some reason, either can't recover from that and need help, or there's a pathological reason for why their jaundice is not resolving or it's gone to really super high levels. So I think it's really nuanced. I think there's risk factors for it. And it's almost not heavily researched anymore because it, it has become so rare because of the vitamin K usage. Yes, it's like problem solved. We don't need to look at it any, anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I anyway, like, people don't need to hear us not this out. They need to hear the facts. So let's no, it's kind of important because when I was researching this, because I still, because I've been a midwife for 15 years, still was calling it hemorrhagic disease of the newborn because that's how I'd been taught and mm. was really a bit confused as to why there wasn't more current research when I was researching. And then it occurred to me, I was like, oh, duh, they've changed the name. So when I started searching for vitamin K deficiency bleeding, that's where I found the more recent research. So although it's not necessarily important what it's called, you know, to everybody, everybody, (laughs) but if you're trying to research it, you want to know that they've actually changed the term because the new research is using this vitamin K deficiency bleeding. So that's where you'll start. That's your search term if you want to get more recent information. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. That's why we give vitamin K is because there is this possibility that your baby could have a bleeding disease, essentially. So it manifests in various ways, but essentially, for some reason, the baby's blood stops properly clotting and they can bleed into their brain. They can ble- blood literally sort of starts seeping out of their body. It's quite catastrophic. And when, and we will look at some of the research, but most babies who do get this disease are either, either die or are left with quite profound disability. So it's, it's not a kind of a half, half disease, you know, some things are kind of can be mild and some things, you know, there's a spectrum. This kind of gets pretty severe regardless of how you look at it. Just yeah. big love yeah. to anyone who has known or has had a baby who has passed away from this, whether you have cared for them or it's been your own baby because, you know, with one per 100,000, that's still three babies a year in Australia. So, um, yeah, just a lot of love if you haven't encountered it because I can imagine it would feel really big. Yeah, totally. So they they classify there's sort of three types and it's based on timing and when it happens. So there's early vitamin K deficiency bleeding, classical and late. So early occurs in the first day of life and it's incredibly rare and considered to be confined to infants who are born to mothers who have needed to take medication during their pregnancy that actually interferes with vitamin K metabolism. So this includes anticonvulsant medications for women who are epileptic. And so there's, and I've actually encountered, you know, even in my small caseload, two or three women who are on anticonvulsant medications. So definitely if you're a woman with epilepsy and you need medication for that through your pregnancy, your baby is at quite a high risk compared to the rest of the population of having this. So, and it's usually these are the ones that occur in the first day. Other things like uh, medications that 
antagonists like warfarin, vitamin K antagonists. So have a look at your particular medication. Obviously, whoever's put you on it should know the action and if that's going to interfere with vitamin K metabolism is the main thing you want to know about. So we know about anticonvulsants. We know about things like warfarin. So there's a few, I've got a few names here for them. So yeah, there's the anticonvulsants, the barbiturates or carbo, carbamazepine and anti-tube cellular drug ramipofacillin. I don't know how to pronounce half these things. So what I'm saying is, is if you're on medication, <laughs> Bees laughing at me. The big I wish there. I wish we could. You did an amazing job. I just wish that was filmed and people could have seen how close you got to your screen, <laughs> how your eyes changed, and even your nose. Like you did this real cute thing with your nose, where you're like trying to like maybe if your nose changed, then you'd be able to read it better. <laughs> like, it maybe you don't know. Um, maybe if I, maybe if I didn't change my nose, the reading would have been much poorer. I can imagine there is something connected to your brain there that's enabling that to happen. Um, beautiful job. Go and talk to your care provider if you're on a medication and you're concerned about it. Absolutely, because you basically want to find out if it interferes with vitamin K metabolism. And if it does, then your baby is at particular risk of early vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And they had a look at the incidences of this. If you, if For women who didn't supplement with vitamin K and fit into this category. This was researched in 1999. So unfortunately, it's kind of few or far between, but we'll use what we've got. They found that between 6 and 12% of these babies would develop vitamin K deficiency bleeding if their mothers didn't accept vitamin K supplementation in the first day of life. So that's, I mean, that's a lot. I, as I, I can't clinically substantiate any of that because you know, we've been giving vitamin K for so long, but this is what the stats were. So at the very minimum, six in 100 babies, at the maximum 12 in 100 babies could experience this bleeding in the babies in this category. So you might consider accepting, because there's two ways you can have this, which we'll talk about, but you might consider vitamin K injection on the first day if you're in this category as a preventative strategy. Where was that research done? I'll have to look at it. I've got the reference, but oh, that's an interesting point too, actually. And I'll talk to you about mm. different locations and different, the mm. app. it's different in different countries. Yeah, because you've just like, jumped from like what one in 100,000 is ooh, zero point, how many zeros have we got? Like three zeros and a one, I would say. A hundred is, yeah. And then you've got six from that to 6%. Well, that's one in 100,000 is if we supplemented everybody, then that's mm. great. But in mm. this one, this this population was unsupplemented. So for these mm. in this early who didn't supplement their babies, between 6 and 12%. And um, had the medication though? No, didn't didn't have the medication. So if you were a woman who, let's say you had a hundred women on epileptic medication, anti-epileptic medication, and none of those women gave their babies vitamin K. Yeah. So they, well, so this is a this is a smaller population of people who actually have epilepsy or something that requires medication. Correct. Okay. It's not looking yes. at the whole population. No, and this it well, this is looking at the early vitamin K deficiency bleeding. 
but it's acknowledging the research that this is a very rare time to be experiencing vitamin K deficiency bleeding and seems to be exclusively confined to women who've had these vitamin K um, meta- uh, had medications that interfere with vitamin K metabolism. So it's quite a unique, like it's a pathological situation. So the population studied were people taking medication, then they didn't have the vitamin K and their babies are the ones that had such a high rate of vitamin K deficiency bleeding within the first 24 hours. So very specific. So most people listening to this, that will not apply to you. But if it does, important to know. Yes. So this, this is what helps with decision-making is if you think to yourself, okay, what's the risk of my baby bleeding in the first 24 hours, it would be different for you compared to a woman who was on this particular medication. So, you know, if you are on that particular medication, you know, you could make decisions like, okay, I'm not going to opt for the oral dosage, which takes longer to act in this situation, maybe I'm a good candidate for the injectable version, which acts almost immediately. So yeah, this just helps with depending on your circumstance, making decisions about the type of vitamin K you have, if you have it at all, and the root. So then we move on to what we call classical vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And this occurs from one to seven days after birth. And it is more common in infants who are unwell at birth or who have delayed onset of feeding. And the bleeding usually comes from the gastrointestinal tract, the umbilicus, so the belly button, skin punctures. So if a baby needs cannulation or if they have a newborn screening test on their heel or blood sugar is done, that's where it will bleed, surgical sites, and less commonly in the brain for this classical, the first week of life. So the incidence of this is very varied in the research. So early reports, so from both sick So all babies, if they're sick, unwell, have risk factors or not. Some of the research says the rates is 0.25 to 1.5%. But a lot of the researchers acknowledge that there's considerable uncertainty about the true rates of classical vitamin K deficiency bleeding because the diagnostic criteria that old vitamin K deficiency bleeding isn't always adhered to in when they report it in research. So there's other reasons why a baby might bleed in the first week of life. And what they're saying is there's very poor data collection about whether or not that was actually related to vitamin K or something else completely. So we're not entirely sure of the exact stats of this classical in the first week bleeding. So that's tricky. And a lot of the criteria, sorry, a lot of the information leaflets and things that you'll be given if you are looking at this. And in the resource folder, there's an excellent one that I've put in there that is very transparent. I was really impressed with the amount of information given. It does highlight that we're not entirely sure of what the stats are. That seems to be a little bit more solid in terms of the third classification of late vitamin K deficiency bleeding, which occurs from eight days to six months after, well, can occur from eight days to six months after birth. And most of the babies in this category present between one and three months. It's almost always confined to fully breastfed infants because uh, formula is fortified with vitamin K Formula-fed babies are considered very low risk of having this vitamin K deficiency bleeding. So it seems to be exclusively the late vitamin K deficiency bleeding exclusive to breastfed babies. 
And interestingly, half of the infants who have this late vitamin K deficiency bleeding have underlying liver disease or malabsorption diseases. And so half of them are already unwell babies. So that's an important thing to note. You talked about the risk factors for the early onset being medication, but were liver conditions in the mother also, were there any other risk factors? I thought you were saying before when we were talking that there was, or is it just medication that increases Um, the risk? So the early one was medication. Okay, but nothing else. Well, that's the only thing that they've mentioned in. Uh, I thought when we were talking before off air that you were saying that it was because uh, you talked about liver conditions, but I you know, I assumed you were talking about liver conditions of the person who was pregnant, but you well, were talking about this baby for the the third classification. So it can be the baby or can be the woman. And the reason why we know about that is that in there are some countries, and let me scroll down to the research here. So, oh, yeah, here we go. In infants without the vitamin K prophylaxis, the incidence of late vitamin K deficiency bleeding has been estimated to be 4.4 in 100,000 in the UK. per 100,000 in Germany and as high as 72 per 100,000 in Thailand. And so, and they've suggested that the consideration that vitamin K deficiency bleeding occurs more frequently in Asian populations compared to Caucasian populations, but this could be explained by a six-fold higher incidence of biliary issues in Asia compared to Western and European countries, and whether or not that's related to an increase um, in um, hepatitis in Asian countries, which has a big impact on liver function. And so it seems to be either the parent, if the parent has a liver issue or disease that that affects the liver, that does put their baby at higher risk of late vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And as soon as you said Thailand, that's exactly what I. Right. So it might not be the case for someone who is of Asian heritage in a Western country and doesn't have hepatitis, then you might think, well, I'm not in that category. So, but if we're doing broad strokes and looking at it, depending on location, it seems to make a difference. And that could, so the environment could make a difference to how at risk your baby is of having vitamin K deficiency bleeding and the risks are different for early, which is the first 24 hours, classical, which is the first week, and late, which is the eight days to six months if it's going to occur. So that's how they classify them. And so the rate, so the general rate of late vitamin K deficiency bleeding, so if your baby's made it to eight days and they're still alive and haven't bled, then <laughs> I feel I feel like I feel like this episode is a complete opposite vibe to what we normally do because normally we're like you know the whole fear that people die and babies die like it's a fear we're put into you and then like today I feel like we're putting that fear in please know we're talking about really small numbers here like I just I know what it was like being pregnant and being surrounded by like just this kind of 
information, right? Like I know we're bringing just the stats here and it's really important when you're thinking about things to have the information that is correct, but just acknowledging the tenderness that we feel when we're pregnant and we're hearing information that surrounds our unborn child's house. I just want to send a lot of love there because, yeah, you're just talking factual, which is great. I can imagine the ears that it's landing on, that would not sound great, that sentence at all. Sorry. (laughs) I just am trying to like, I don't know what I'm trying to Get out the facts. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's important. It's really important. We want to get out the facts. We need to know this. But I think, you know, when you're pregnant and you hear that a baby can die, you automatically go, well, that's my baby that could die. And what we're talking about today here is an incredibly rare condition. And it's important to have the information so that you make the decision that's right for you. Because the fact is people decline this or people choose different roots of administration. And that is your choice always. As we said at the start, you have to give consent for your child to have this. And so it is It is your choice whether your child has it or not. Our job as healthcare professionals is to ensure that you have the information that enables you to make the decision that's right for you and your family. Yeah. So that's why I'm giving so much detail is because yeah, you've got to make perfect. it. Perfect. I, <laughs> I just had to give some love around that sentence. I'm just too You've made it to eight days and your child's alive. <laughs> a majority of people in Australia will. What I'm trying to say is I guess this is probably more important for people who have declined and they think, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? If you have some concerns, if nothing's hmm. happened by day eight, if you decline vitamin K, the rate of vitamin K deficiency bleeding in babies who haven't had the vitamin K is 5 to 20 per 100,000 births. So, you know, if you've not had it and your baby's over eight days, then the risk really significantly reduces. And of the babies who do get this, the 5 to 20 in 100,000, 30% of them won't survive the vitamin K deficiency event and 70 will, but usually with profound disability. So... Those are the very cheery stats. So if we do 20 divided by 100,000. Times by 100. We'll give you a percent. We do. We want to times it by 100, don't we? Equals. And And that's 0.02%. Yeah. So say that again with the percentage this time. If you've declined vitamin K and your baby is day eight or older and is well, then their risk of developing vitamin K deficiency, what are we calling it? Disorder? Vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Bleeding is 0.02%. And that's for the people who've declined vitamin K. So the people who actually have accepted vitamin K, the rates are about one in 100,000. Okay. So I calculated that at 20. I did the highest amount, so that's the highest percentage. So their risk, so your risk is 0.001. There you go. If if you've had vitamin K and you're at day eight and your baby as well, their chance of developing it mostly is going to happen in the first three months of life but can happen in the first six is still 0.001. So there's still a percentage, as always, 
There's a percentage of everything happening to us everywhere at any given time. The other risk factor I want to talk about is, and it's a lot more rare these days, but if you plan on circumcising your child, male circumcision, then that's usually done in the first month of the baby's life. And this presents a risk factor. So any kind of surgery, if your baby needs a cannula, if it's in special care nursery, if you're planning circumcision, if your baby has some kind of condition that needs surgery, sometimes heart conditions, then your baby is also at increased risk of of every kind of hemorrhage really. But it's a risk factor for vitamin K deficiency bleeding as well. So you might opt for injectable vitamin K instead of the oral. And we'll talk about, it might be a good segue into talking about the different ways that you can administer vitamin K to a newborn baby. I just wanted to ask, what about, I always thought premature babies and babies born by instrumental births, do they increase the risk as well from what you've read? Any kind of trauma seems like any bruising and perhaps prematurity, I can't remember if I read that, prematurity could be a risk factor. Yeah, I would have to have another look at the research, but feel free to go and read all the papers in the, yeah. the results folder. That would information would be there. So you've got to consider whether you have any risk factors as you make your decision. And, and then you, make a decision on administration. Then you've got to make a decision on administration. So like, do I want my baby to have it, firstly? Secondly, how do I want them to have it? So there's in Australia here, we use a product called Kanakin. And there's some pretty good research on Kanakin. It seems to be one of the better products. Or, yeah, vitamin K is the active ingredient. So depending on where you are, it might be called something else. So in Australia, we give 0.1 of a mil via injection, intramuscular injection into a baby's thigh as a possible dose option. And that is a single dose usually on the day of birth that's given to the baby. The other option is oral administration. So you give 0.2 of a mil on day one of the baby's life, day three or four of the baby's life, and week three or four of the baby's life. So it's three doses of 0.2 of a mil of this vitamin K. So higher, much higher dosing because orally absorption is, you can't really track the absorption of vitamin K through the digestive system, whereas when you give the injection, obviously the baby has to accept the full dose because it's in there. So the injection is considered ever so slightly more efficient, which is why we recommend it for babies who are at particular risk because it's an early dose. You can guarantee the dosage. Yeah, it's kind of a sure thing, whereas the oral dose depends on the baby's absorption if the baby spits it up, all kinds of things. Also, parents might be kind of less, no, I don't want to use the word compliant, but babies who have oral doses may typically have fewer if parents change their mind in between doses and think, actually, I don't want that last dose or whatever they decide to do. So those are the two. It's also hard too with the system. So if you've got a private midwife who's going to see you, or you've got you're in an MGP program that offers the full scope of midwifery care, which is up to six weeks postpartum, then that dose is much more easy to administer. But if your care stops at day ten, for example, getting that dose is extremely hard. So I've had lots of people 
in my care have the oral and that was fine because I could follow it up for that whole time. But if you're in a system where you don't have continuity of carer, then getting that last dose can be extremely difficult. Mm. So just a really important thing that that I would say, and it might not, the research might not be there, but anecdotally it is for sure that care provider would would affect how many doses a baby gets. Totally. And that's the other thing is often hospitals won't even offer an oral dose because they know they're not capable of actually administering the full schedule. And so because yeah, they're not providing you care at three weeks or four no. weeks. Often women are discharged even before the second dose. So you'd have a and maternal one. child. Yeah. And maternal child health don't carry it. So it's not something that can be easily followed up. Although fun story, vitamin K is actually an over-the-counter medication at the pharmacy. The one that we inject is the same one that you can get orally. And when I use, when I, because I'm a private midwife, so I see my clients and can offer oral, I restock my kit full of medications as needed. I don't need or use a script for vitamin K. It's over the counter. You can literally walk up and say, I'd like to order this pediatric canakian. And if you wanted to, I don't advocate for it. But it's got everything in that box to administer an oral dose to a baby. Uh, oh, it does too, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a big box of it and it comes, yeah. yeah and it's it got does. the little syringe where it only will draw yeah. up 0.2 of a mil. And so if you really do want the oral dose, you could either say to the hospital, can I take home the two more vials for the next two doses so that I can administer it myself? It's it's not hard to administer. It's a glass vial, which is a little bit tricky if you've never snapped a, the, the lid off a glass vial before. But the little syringes, are they will only draw up 0.2 of a mil. There's only 0.2 of a mil in the bottle. And so long as you only give your baby a dose at three day three or four and day and week three or four, then you're not going to overdose your baby. So, I mean, for people who are desperate to do that and don't know where they're going to get access Otherwise, it is over the counter. You don't need a script. The, the chemist won't have it in stock, but they get daily deliveries of medicine. So if you order it, they will have it in the next day. And, uh, yeah. It's pretty cheap. I've forgotten about those big boxes because we didn't, I haven't done that for a while. I mean, and it's a vitamin. It's not a, like we said, it's not an immunization. So it's not, a med- a yeah, it's not specifically a medicine either. Like it's, yeah, it's considered a vitamin supplement. Hmm. Um, so, in terms of side effects, so this is what everybody wonders, like what are the side effects? Mm. Uh, it don't seem to be many, actually. We've been giving it for a long, long time, like over 50 or 60 years now. They used to have a formulation in the 80s that had something in it that had a risk of anaphylaxis, but they've since changed the formula and it's considered that that risk of anaphylaxis is almost zero. The only thing that is still hanging around, and this is all very transparently mentioned in a lot of the pamphlets as well that women will get, is that there was one study that found an increased risk of childhood cancer for children receiving the injectable version. But they've never been able to repeat that same finding. So it's, you know, everybody sort of says, well, they only just found that the one time and we're not really sure that that's actually true. Uh, there's and in in the resource folder, the NHMRC, the National Health Medical Research Council, has done this really really good information sheet 
It's based on evidence and it's got a very extensive reference list. It's very transparent and it's designed for consumers, birth workers, midwives, for people to who aren't always reading research to read it. And it's got all this information in it. It specifically mentions this particular study. So no one's hiding it. So And then the other risk factors are just the fact that you gave a baby an injection. So it could be some local irritation at the injection site, Um, but it's not specifically related to the medicine. It's just that the baby was injected. Which is why a lot of people will choose oral, right? Because they don't want their baby injected and distressed in the first moments of its life. Correct. And you can give, you if the baby's latched well to the breast, like this is how I do all of my painful procedures. For babies is giving them while the woman's breastfeeding really significantly reduces the baby's perception of pain it seems some some care providers will use glucose gel for the reduction of pain sensation for babies i mean if the woman can breastfeed or even bottle bottle feeding a baby would be another option i also just want to say it doesn't like a lot of you know, this isn't something that is done as soon as your baby is born. I mean, if there's a really high risk factor, maybe that's your choice for it too. But the whole idea is that the baby gets on, does its breast crawl, has its first breastfeed, and then at the end of that procedure, is that when you would do it mostly at, at a home birth? If people yeah. Once, yeah once they've had kind of a really good done. feed. Yeah. yeah. And the baby is, you know, I wouldn't do it in a situation where they're still trying to latch, like the woman's working to get the baby on. It's like if the baby's on and I kind of go, oh, the baby's feeding, do you want to do that vitamin K now? Like I kind of take an opportunistic uh, moment. And some women will say, oh, actually, can we do this tomorrow? And it's like, oh, that's fine. Like there's no risk factors. We can do this tomorrow. And the other note about the the oral vitamin K is that I like to recommend that we do that like right after a feed, after the first feed, because the first breastfeed, you know, lines the gut with colostrum and starts off the microbiome and all that kind of stuff. I don't think we should be putting vitamin K as the baby's first food, if you know what I mean. I think make sure you've had the baby's had a good solid feed before you give an oral dose. And it is suspended in like a, a fat lipid formula because vitamin k is a fat soluble vitamin the i just want to say around the having babies having injections when breastfeeding or being bottle fed just babies feeding basically because it's comforting for them that you can ask for that by your care providers like i that was how i always practice and i always encourage people to ask for it i have had lots of stories where people have been met with i can't do that and so just know that it will be care provider dependent that some care providers may have never done it before some may be willing to try it some will be completely against it so it really it will really depend on who your care provider is and that is something that you can talk to if you know your care provider talk to them about before like when you're having this discussion around vitamin k and giving the consent for it um yeah. so, and especially if you've had a cesarean i think as well or you've had something like a pph or a, or a significant tear that you've been taken away down to theaters to be sutured this stuff can sometimes happen when you're not there and some people are fine with that other people are not. So really thinking about when you are doing your birth mapping, hey, would I like to be present when my baby has this and uh, where, what position and would I like my baby to be? You might just want to hold your baby's hand and comfort them 
and then put them to the breast afterwards. Uh, just having a little think about what suits you and what meets your needs, because often it's in your, first, especially if it's your first baby, it's your first real time for advocating for your child and and ex- having them experience pain in your first couple of hours of being a parent. And that's huge for a lot of people. Once it's your second and third, it may not feel as big, but it can be really, really big for first-time parents and just for care providers to really acknowledge that. I think if you're a care provider listening, I'm sure those that are listening are already converted, but maybe talking to our colleagues more about just really bringing in some nurturing love around this procedure. Yeah. I am concerned we're going to get some hate mail around this topic. Well, I think people would have expected us to come at this with a different attitude because really listening to this, you're like, we're pretty much saying take it. Well, and I'm not like, I'm not advocating for people to take things or not. I'm just telling you what the research is. So yeah, be concerned. We might be getting some hate mail from people going, hey, you guys are advocating for the use of vitamin K and you guys don't advocate for, obviously we advocate for physiological birth. Yes. But we are, we're really advocating for informed choice. So the reason we give- With everything that we do, right? And and I think really just- to give listeners an idea, we are both registered midwives under ARPRA. Everything we have, everything we say and do, we're regulated and it has to be evidence-based. So as always, it's not about saying no to everything. It's not about saying yes to everything. It's about understanding why you're saying yes and making sure that you're comfortable with that. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah, I think there might be some people who are upset who think, actually, I wasn't going to give my baby vitamin K, but now you scared me into it. We are not intending to scare anybody. We're just giving you the research, letting you know what's out there so that, you know, some women look at a statistic and they think that's a low risk. Others look at it and think, whoa, that's a high risk. And so risk is always in the eye of whoever's looking at it. And so the decision, yeah, the decision's completely yours. I'm not telling you to take it or not. You you can... You can consent for your baby to have it. You can consent to have for them to have it via injection or via orally, or you can decline it. And that conversation will be something that you have with your care provider. We just want to give you the information so that you can go in before that appointment. Everyone receives information differently. And so being really curious around how it feels to receive this information and all the information we talk about will help you to make the decision that's best for you. So if you are feeling really triggered and thinking, you know, I feel scared about this. I want to give this to my baby or vice versa. We're going to have everybody. We have everybody turn up to this podcast, people that are going to be like, no, I don't want to. And yes, I do. So it's about you meeting your own needs. And I think it's a different story too. Like if you're planning on formula feeding your baby, then you know your baby's risk is way lower. So you might sort of go, do you know what? I don't feel like I need to because I know that. Whereas if you're on epileptic medication, you think, whoa, my baby's risk is way higher, then then you can decide based on your own health and well-being and based on your feeding decisions and based on particular risk factors and where you live. You know, if you have liver disease, if your baby has liver disease, there's so many factors that will go into this decision. So we can't decide for you. And I'm actually betting that 90% of our listeners whether you're a midwife, a birth worker, or a woman who's had a baby, 90% will have never heard any of this information about vitamin K because it's not really talked about. Women mostly accept it. Midwives aren't in the habit of giving a buttload of information about administering vitamin K. 
And when they do, it might be a sentence or two. So, yeah, I suppose the purpose of this podcast would be to go deep. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that we've missed? No, that's all I had written down. But I really want to encourage you. I actually feel like I haven't done the research papers full justice and the information papers that I'll put in the resource folder are actually really palatable and easy to understand. So if you're still on the fence and you feel like I haven't given you enough information to make a decision, go ahead, have a look at the resource folder. And so that- email you to ask you directly for the Stop it. Is No, that what we do? Not. We email you directly. At mel at melaniethemidwife.com. No, go to the the wrong address. (laughs) Go to melaniethemidwife.com and sign up to the mailing list for the podcast, and you'll actually get an instant link that takes you through to the resource folder. It's all there. And it has all the evidence from all the um, episodes we've done. It's not like if you sign up today, you only get the future ones, you get the past ones as well. Right. Now I want to go and look at it because I feel like I need more information. Super go interesting. Deeper. Yeah, go deeper. I learned some new things. I was like, oh, there you go. So it's always good for an update. So even if you're a midwife and you think you know, go ahead, have a look at the readings and you'll know even more. So what was the best one to look at, the NHMRC one? Well, the NHMRC one was developed with consumers in mind. It's quite well researched. Unlike a lot of you know, information leaflets that use really crappy references. I felt like, because I came to it after reading all the other stuff and I felt like they did a good job at being transparent. They even did not keep leave out the childhood cancer research, which I thought was good because it just seemed like some people don't mention that because it's fairly unsubstantiated, but they don't mention it. It feels scary and they don't want to scare people. Yeah, and they want to kind of try and convince people to take the vitamin K. So I felt like it was a good, well-rounded information paper. Uh, Yeah. Great. Great. Well, that's a wrap, guys. That was our take on vitamin K for newborns. And we'll see you in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> all right.